1: Hello everyone and welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that everything, I mean simply everything you could possibly ever think of, has its own history, like elephants, blackboards and trainers. And we will be following the
2: links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew that the history of graffiti is in fact all about Viking travel? Or that the history of eyes is all about Tudor England being a surveillance state. It's spies everywhere.
1: Ooh, lots of people looking and listening. We could do the history of ears as well, couldn't we, in that, James? And chopping ears off. Oh, yikes. I know. The man sitting opposite me who will help pilot us through this wonderful historical world is one of the country's leading professors of history. You're very lucky that he's here talking to you today. It's James Davell. Hi, James. Hello, Sam. And the man not sitting
2: opposite me, because he's across town during <laughs> lockdown, is the wonderful, famous
1: historical adventurer himself, Dr. Sam Willis. Hello, Sam! Hello, everyone. This is a yet another episode in our special series of homeschooling for kids. I hope you're enjoying them. We're absolutely loving doing them, trying to come up with different topics we can do. And each episode, we take a subject that I bet you don't think has a history. And we, what we do is we prove that it does. And today we're doing the history of presents. It's going to be a good one. James, do you know what the best present you've ever had is?
2: Oh, the best present I've ever had. Do you know, I think it was a train set when Ooh. I was a child or a, I think I, I got a fort as well, a little toy fort with soldiers. And I, I remember that very well. And um, I think as a child, that was probably, those were two of my best presents.
1: Yeah, um, actually I, I have been mulling this over and my grandfather made me a fort. And that was, I think, one of my best presents. I'm asking you because my birthday was last week hmm. and I got some really excellent presents.
2: I did know it, but I didn't send you one. Uh, I used the um, excuse of lockdown and the fact so ha- that you never buy me a present.
1: Oh, thanks, mate. <laughs> um, um, I think my new favourite present is a hammock.
2: Oh, you a hammock. have a hammock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, what? One that it's... stretches between trees, or one that is on a stand?
1: Trees trees, funnily enough. Anyway, Lovely. how do we do this in history? It's actually, um, it's worth thinking about. I'll talk about this later, but think about all the presents you've been given in your lives because it'll take you back to a certain moment in your life. But how do we go about thinking about presents in history? Ah, well, for me, presents or gift giving is
2: the very building block of how society works. Did you know that? That sounds like a very complicated thing to say. But the giving of a gift is it structures a relationship between two people and you can take this all the way back to the classical time of of rome and greece and you can see it in a book by the writer seneca and it's a book on benefits and he talks there about how the fact that when you give something to somebody it's not just an empty gift so there is an expectation that you do something in return. And if you have a look throughout history, that is the basic building block of how societies work. You give somebody something and you expect something from them in return. And we can see this throughout the Tudor period. And one of the things that I have worked on in my career as a Tudor historian is New Year's gift rolls. These are fantastic historical documents. Okay, Imagine an enormous piece of paper, about 10 metres long and about 80 centimetres wide. And on one side of it is written everything that has been given to the king or queen by all the people in the court. So all sorts of lavish things. And on the other side is a list of everything that the king or queen has given to their courtiers. And it is a wonderful way of looking at power and politics in Tudor England. Not only do we see the fantastic things that have been given to the monarchs. Elizabeth I was given very elaborate gifts of clothing and jewellery and lavish books. But also it enables you to see exactly who was in power, who was in favour at a particular point each year, because you would only have a gift from the monarch and get your name on this gift roll if you were in the monarch's favour. So gift giving is a brilliant way to look not only at the entire structure of the way in which the world operates, but also at politics in Tudor England.
1: You could also apply it to all sorts of things. I mean, I do a lot of work on medieval China and they had something called the tributary system where rulers of different lands brought tribute to the Chinese emperors. And a similar sort of thing to the gift rolls, where we have amazingly detailed records of all of the gifts that were given to the Ming emperors in particular. Um, And they often included all sorts of wonderful Um, exotic things like frankincense and pepper, ivory, rhino horn and peacock feathers was another one as well. So you can see what the world considered as luxury items and how that changed over time. And also you can see what the Chinese wanted to be brought. So I think that's fascinating. They even brought them live animals. There's a very famous example of a a giraffe being brought back to China.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And often this kind of gift giving would be part of diplomatic visits. So ambassadors would turn up and they would give a gift to the ruler that they were visiting as a way of currying favour. It's also a way of showing off how wealthy you are. For example, if somebody turns up at your house for dinner and they bring flowers, a bottle of wine and chocolates, you know that they have gone over the top and that they are in fact, it isn't simply because they like you so much. It's because they feel that they need to show off in that manner.
1: Mm. There are Mm. lots of examples of people being given as gifts as well, whether it's children, in some cases, slaves. James, do you remember um, those examples of children being given as gifts we talked about?
2: I do. In the Elizabethan period, children were often presented as gifts to other people. And this is all about the way in which young children were educated during the 16th century. They would be placed in other people's houses
1: to be brought Hmm. up. I came across something that said that Queen Victoria was given an orphaned African child as a gift, which is a story I didn't know about at all. And it's one I'm going to look into a bit more. But today, guys, I know we've just talked about the Tudor period. What we actually want to do is to talk about the history of presence in direct relation to the Normans, um, and also to do with feudalism. So this is all to do with the changes that happened in England after the Norman conquest. So just to set the context, what's happened here is that both King Harold of England and William of Normandy have made a claim to the throne of England. William has invaded and he has fought and defeated King Harold at the Battle of Hastings. One of the interesting things about that battle is the difference in the people doing the fighting, because this is one of the key changes which is going to happen in England under William's control. And the key point to know here is that William's army contained knights, knights who had a certain status in society. They had a certain degree of money. They were well trained and they were well equipped. And crucially, they had horses. Harold's army is a bit different. Primarily peasants. Yes, they did have some spears, axes and swords, but they were also fighting with farm tools like pitchforks and even Harold's um, key group of bodyguards that protected him and fought uh, for him. These were known as housecarls. They fought with huge double handed axes, but no horses. So they didn't have this knightly rank of knights. So after the battle, King Harold dies. William takes control. We've done a podcast on the history of show-offs. And if you want to explore how the Normans showed off, primarily by building castles all over the country in timber and in stone, and that will help you understand some of the changes that they brought to England. So they bring castles to England. Also, the language of the country changes primarily to French. Um, lots of names changed. They build not only uh, castles but also churches but one of the key things that actually happens here that we need to understand and know about in relation to gifts and presents is the way that land ownership changed so william's crowned king on the on christmas day in 1066 and shortly after his coronation he claims that he now owns all of the land in england he controls everything. And what he does is he keeps about a fifth, 20% of the land for his own personal use. A quarter of the land, that's a significant amount because it's actually more than he has personally as king. So 25% goes to the church and that ends up leading to all sorts of conflicts later on in the Middle Ages. But the rest of the land is given as presents to his supporters and those who helped him defeat harold at the battle of hastings there were 170 of them were made now he doesn't just give them this land in with expecting nothing in return he gives them the land expecting these men these barons to provide him With knights, with armed men on horseback for military service whenever he requests it, whenever he needs it. So that goes back to what happened at the Battle of Hastings with William's army utterly defined for the number of knights who were in his army. And he's now created the system which already existed in Normandy of knights and he's brought it to England. So to supply these knights, the barons then divide their own land up into smaller units called manors. And the manors are passed on to men who promise to serve as knights for when the king needs them. This creation of knights has its own ceremony, which was very important, where the baron kneeling in front of the king and says, I become your man, then places his hand on the Bible and promises to remain faithful to the king for the rest of his life. And the baron carries out these similar ceremonies with his own knights. So it's a ceremony that's reproduced down the chain. And by the time this is all finished, when it's all the distribution is finished, there are about 6,000 manors in England. They all vary in size. So William sets up what's known as the knightly class. And just to give you a sense of how important this was and how fundamentally it changed and for how long, I've got a couple of primary sources here. This one is from Walter of Gisborough. It's a chronicle written in thirteen ten, so it's two hundred and forty-four years after the land is all divided up by into William's supporters. Earl Warren was called before the king's judges. The judges asked to see his warrant. That means documents proving he owns the land. He produces instead. An ancient and rusty sword, and said, Look at this, my lords, this is my warrant. For my ancestors came with William and conquered their lands with the sword, and by the sword I will defend them from anyone intending to seize them. The king did not conquer and subject the land by himself, but our forebears were sharers and partners with him. It's a fascinating document. Remember, 244 years after the Norman conquest, and still the memory. Memory is alive of those who fought with William and who were then rewarded for it. And this other source is by the famous poet Geoffrey Chaucer and it's called The Knight Squire. It was written in 1395. This is 329 years after the Norman conquest and it talks about knights and it makes you realise just how important they had come to English society. With curly locks, as if they had been pressed, he was some twenty years of age, I guessed. In stature he was of a moderate length, with wonderful agility and strength. He'd seen some service with the cavalry in Flanders and Artois and Picardy. Short was his gown, and sleeves were long and wide. He knew the way to sit a horse and ride. He could make songs and poems and recite, knew how to joust and dance, to draw and write so you've got this sense of knights having certain amount of literacy certain amount of skills in horsemanship in fighting they can sing they can uh, recite poetry all of these things are what defined knights later on in the middle ages but they all came down to william winning at the battle of hastings and giving as presents huge parcels of land of england to those who helped him defeat king harold
2: Now, this is a fundamental part of what is known as the feudal system during this period, although historians disagree over whether this was a new term or not. But we should see the feudal system simply as a way of organising people. And it's important to remember that at this period in the 11th century, the way society was organised was a very top-down model – very different from the way that it works today, where we see very much a bottom upwards system with people voting for MPs in Parliament who make the laws. In other words, it's a top-down system from the king to the people. In other words, as Sam said, William the Conqueror was the absolute ruler in that he owned everything. And if we have a look At the society at the time, it is broken up into different ranks with different responsibilities and it establishes a social hierarchy. So we have at the very top, we have the king who ruled and protected the country. We then have the barons below him who are given this rank by the king and who had land and power from the king. Below the barons are the knights who fought for king and country, and below that we have peasants who farmed and did labouring work. In other words, it's a very top-down medieval society in which everyone promised to be loyal to the person above them in the system. They owed what is known as homage to those people, to their lord, and there were no rules or restriction on what the king could do. And central to this system is the giving away of land, as Sam had said. Now, we've done a brilliant podcast on the Doomsday Book. Do you remember doing that, Sam? Yes, we did it on the history of names. Fascinating stuff. The history of names. But what happened was, in 1086, the Doomsday Book was created, which basically was a stock check of all the land in the country. And it showed... William the Conqueror exactly who owned what, and it allowed him to set up a system whereby different parcels of land were given out. As Sam said, after 1066, William kept about a fifth of the land. He gave 25% to the church, and the church became an important part of this feudal system as great landowners. He rewarded The next group of people, the barons, who were his followers, and these people became tenants-in-chief to him. And in return for their land, the thing that they had to give for this present was an oath of loyalty. And they promised to give him money and soldiers in order to help him fight. Below them, they gave land to their own followers to secure their loyalty and those people are known as knights and they are known as under-tenants. And in return for their land, they too took an oath of loyalty to the baron and promised to serve as a knight in the army. In other words, fighting on horseback. They kept some land for themselves and then shared the rest between the Saxon peasants or villains who lived on their manors. And here we are at the bottom of the social order with the villains. In return for their land, they had to obey the lord of the manor and give him part of their crops. They also worked without pay on the lord's own land. And villains were not free men. Uh, They could not leave the lord's land without his permission. And they even needed permission from their lord for their own sons and daughters to get married. Now, what's important to think about is what the impact of this system is on a violent society. And the king basically had access readily to a large group of knights to fight in his army. And the majority of the population provided him resources in order to fight. In other words, the feudal system gave these early medieval kings an army. And the feudal system was also the basis of the medieval class system. In other words, the hierarchy of society with the king in control at the top and peasants or villeins at the bottom. We also see as something developing out of this night service that Sam was speaking about, ideas of chivalry, which comes from the French word chaval, meaning horse. And these ideas develop into a series of rules about good conduct in military matters. So how to behave as a loyal,
1: honourable knight. So you can see how this gift giving was so important to the structure of England in the years to come. But interestingly, it created really quite a large number of problems Um, and primarily the Doomsday Book was set about to help answer some of the quarrels, some of the queries about who actually owned which parcel of land so that William could decide finally on, on land ownership and it also raised problems between the church. And the state. But anyway, here's time for our traditional little quiz to see if you've been listening carefully. Firstly, what was the main difference between the armies at the Battle of Hastings in 1066? In question two, what was night service?
2: Question three, how much land did William keep for himself? Question four, how much land did William give to the
1: church? Question five, what was the name of the English writer who wrote about knights in 1395? And finally,
2: which group of people were at the bottom of society in
1: medieval England? So there you go. There's your little quiz. You've got to go back and listen again if you can't answer them all. And we've also got a few tasks for you actually today. I'm quite inspired by these. I'd like you, first of all, to make a list of your favourite presents and see if you can write down the presents that you've got and also the date you received them. It's a little exercise. It'll help you think about your own history in relation to being given presents. OK, I have another one.
2: I want you to think of six to ten different people in today's society. For example... Teacher, doctor, lawyer, factory worker, history professor. Now, (laughs) place them all in order with the most important at the top and the least important at the bottom. And you might want to compare this with a friend. Now, of course, the top
1: begins with a history professor, as we all know. (laughs) That's very good, but it all raises some very interesting questions. What, who's more important? Is it someone who can mend electricity in your house or is it someone who passes and keeps the law? Gosh, a whole nest of things to think about there, James. Um, do please check out historiesoftheunexpected.com. Come and find us on social media. We're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, we're on Instagram. Come and make friends. We'd love to meet every single one of you. We've got more coming. Thank you so much for listening, guys, and we'll be with you soon. Bye. Bye.